Well, Pastor Carlos, thank you. And church, it is a blessing to, to be together and uh, get in the Word together. Last week, we finished our series in Esther. And uh, before we dive into Haggai, I didn't want to kind of start something and then be gone for a couple weeks. So decided this week, in light of Nolan's visit, and last week when we talked about the need to remember and the importance of passing along what we have to the next generation, felt like it would be appropriate to dive into Deuteronomy chapter 6. Because there we get one of the core uh, just commands of the entire Old Testament that talks about the next generation. So we're going to be in Deuteronomy 6 last week. And, uh, you know, it's been a while since we've gotten to stand while we read the Word. This morning, will you stand with me as I read from Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you are able. We're going to be starting in verse 4, going through verse 15. And I want to remind you that when I come across the word LORD in all caps, uh, I read that as Yahweh, because that's originally what it was. And uh, there's more details behind that, but when we see that, that is the personal divine name of God, Yahweh. So uh, that's what I'll be saying. If you will join with me, or listen while I read, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when Yahweh your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget Yahweh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is Yahweh your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For Yahweh your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of Yahweh your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, we praise you and thank you for the gift of your word. Help us to hear from you this morning. May we have soft hearts and open ears. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, uh, I want to share with you kind of, we can, we can probably classify this as either my biggest fail or one of my most embarrassing moments. And it happened a little over a year ago, kind of right before we came here. It was March, spring break of 2022, and uh, it was uh, uh, going on, uh, it was it, it was in relation to going on a international spring break trip, mission trip to Central Asia. I was still working with college students, and we had planned this one week trip to Central Asia. Me and my co-leader Christine, 
There are about a dozen of us, and these trips can be pretty complicated. There's a ton of moving pieces, a lot of logistics that have to be taken care of, raising support, contacting kind of your hosts in country, and, you know, all, all the things that go on with travel. There's a lot of moving pieces, but I was pretty comfortable in planning this trip because I had a lot of experience in doing these types of things. I'd led a half a dozen or so of trips just like this in the past. And so things went, for the most part, pretty smoothly. All of our students raised their support and then some, had good connections with our hosts in Central Asia. So everything seemed good to go. So we hop in a big van and head up to the airport in Indianapolis on Saturday morning of spring break. We get to the airport, we all start checking in, and my co-leader, Christine, gets to the ticket counter, and they're like, we don't know who you are. We don't have a ticket for you. She's like, how can you not have a ticket for me? Our whole group has a ticket. You know, we had a group ticket. How am I not in it? And I'm, I'm kind of freaking out because I'm like, I was the ops kind of guy arranging everything. And I'm like, oh no, what has happened? So I, I start digging through the emails that I had with uh, a travel agent buddy of mine. And I get to the ticketing name list that I had sent him. And... Uh, I had left Christine's name off the list, so we had not bought her, I, let's be real, I had not bought her a ticket. That's kind of an important part of travel. You can do all the planning. You can be ready to go on this mission trip, but if you don't have a ticket, you're not going. The ticket is the most important part of a trip. Without that plane ticket, you can't go. It was a pretty humbling moment when I realized just how easy it is to miss the main thing. I had gotten wrapped up in all of these other things that the most important person on the trip besides myself didn't have the most important thing to actually get her where she needed to go. Now, in God's graciousness, Christine ended up being able to go, not because she was able to fly out of Indianapolis. There were no more tickets out of Indianapolis. There was a ticket out of Chicago, though. So she managed to get a flight from Chicago directly to Doha and then Doha to our host country. We were going from Indianapolis to Boston to Doha. So she ended up on the same flight from Doha to our host country. And it was a testimony to God's amazing grace. But it was also one of those, Christine, I can't believe I just did that. You almost had a week at home and the rest of us would have been in Asia. It is easy to miss the main thing. And our text this morning is going to remind us of the main thing, of what God calls us to as His people, worship of Him alone. This section of Deuteronomy in chapter 6 is coming at a point in the book where Moses has recounted their history, and then he started to recount the law, because Deuteronomy, by the way, means the second giving of the law. Deuteronomy is written at the very end of their wilderness wanderings. They're about to go into the promised land. And so he's getting, it's a recap of everything that's come before and the expectations of what they need to do when they're in the land. And Deuteronomy 6 comes right after Moses recaps the Ten Commandments. And he's like, okay, here's the Ten Commandments, but here's what you need to do. Here's how you live in light of them. This is, this is the culture that you need to create when you are in the land, the culture of the people of God. Now, 
This command in Deuteronomy 6 is not given explicitly to us as Christians in the church. However, we are grafted into Israel's story, and we are part of God's people. And so as we see God interacting with His people and telling them, this is what you need to be like, well, the same is true for us. We see God's heart through these commands in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So here today, we're kind of seeing a culture that God's people need to have. And this, these commands, this love of God, gets repeated throughout the New Testament. And there's echoes of it, there's direct quotations of it. Even in Revelation, John likes to reference this. And it's really veiled in Revelation. Revelation is an interesting book because you have tons of Old Testament echoes, but very few direct citations. But you even get the, this, it's called the Shema in Revelation. But let's dive in. We're going to start with our, our first point today before we look at... Um, before we look at our, our text, it's this. God's people serve only one God, and we must worship Him alone. God's people serve only one God, and we must worship Him alone. In essence, that's what this command is all about. Devotion to Yahweh is the main thing. You can do everything else, but if you don't have this plane ticket, you ain't going anywhere. This is the main thing, worship and devotion to Yahweh. It's the main thing for the life of the Christian. It was the main thing in the life of ancient Israel. All right, so diving back in to verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. What's going on with this? Well, it starts with hear. Hear, O Israel. There's kind of three parts to this first verse right here. Verse 4, uh, hear, O Israel. The Hebrew word for hear is shema. It's pronounced a little bit different for that, but in English that's what we would say. And so that's why we, the Jews even called this the shema. It stands for hear. And it's basically this idea of, hey, listen up. You need to take in what's about to be said. And what follows really becomes a confessional statement for Israel. They said it all the time, and it really summarizes who they are, summarizes who we are as the people of God. They said it all the time. And this idea of hearing is the idea that this should move you. It's not in one ear and out the other. It's not, hey, receive some information. It's hear something and be changed. Hear something and respond. See, we tend to think of hearing kind of like the experience of eating iceberg lettuce. It's not much of, a, much of a culinary experience. There's no real flavor, and there's not much nutrition in it either. You can't really survive off of iceberg lettuce. But that's not the type of hearing or eating that Moses is talking about. It's more like a steak, something that both tastes delicious and gives you the protein that you need to survive. Yes, you do need steak to survive, in case you are curious this morning. Or in Sioux County, yes, yay steak. But yeah, hear, digest this, dwell on it, chew it. This needs to move you. So hear this, O Israel, but hear what? We get this phrase, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the first half is the Lord our God. By the way, this phrase is kind of difficult to even translate exactly right, because in Hebrew, there's no verb for is. 
There's a verb for was, or I should say word. There's a word for was, there's a word for will be. But if you want to say something is something, you just put the two words next to each other. So this, this literally reads, the Lord our God, the Lord one. That's what it says. So what do we do with this? Where do we put the is's in this sentence? And that can kind of give a different flavor of what this, what this statement is trying to say, depending on where you put the is. But this first one, this idea of the Lord is our God, is kind of a, probably a faithful way to render that as well. Even if you look in your Bible, you'll see they'll usually have a note with like five different ways to translate the Shema. But the Lord is our God. And it's not just the Lord, it's Yahweh, this divine name, this personal covenantal God. He has a name and He knows you. He is your God. That's where the first emphasis is on, your God. You, O Israelites, have a God. And us too, we have a God, a God who loves us, a God who has entered into relationship with us. The God of all creation has entered into a personal relationship with His covenant people. What a beautiful truth. He is our God. But He's also one. What is that saying? Is this a commentary on, or against, I should say, Trinitarianism? Is that what Moses is trying to go after? Is he talking about the internal unity of God? I don't think that's a fair reading of this, especially when you read the rest of Deuteronomy. What does Moses emphasize? Well, it emphasizes worship of God alone, Yahweh alone, saying, look, this is your God and Him alone you should worship. I think a really faithful rendering of this whole sentence would be the Lord, Yahweh, is your God. The Lord, Yahweh, is your one God, especially the way Hebrew works, uh, especially when you have uh, lines and parallels. A lot of time, words from the first line need to get translated or moved down to the second line as well, and the original speakers would have known that, Uh, but in English, that's not the way our language works, so sometimes it's difficult for us to kind of wrap our heads around that. I remember being uh, talking with my Hebrew professor uh, a while ago, and we were kind of wrestling with this verse. And he's kind of walking us through some of the nuance of all of that, but then realizing just the beauty of how Moses is telling us that their God wanted their worship, their worship alone. They should only worship Him, no other gods. And the truth is, is it's tempting to worship other gods, is it not? Other gods can be attractive. They can be more convenient. They tend to operate in the way that we want them to operate, right? But here we have, Yahweh is your God and Him alone you should be worshiping. We see this in verse 5. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. If that sounds familiar, it's because Jesus said this was the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, might. And this isn't dividing our beings into three parts, but it's the idea of the totality of us. Everything about you, your affections and desires with your heart, your very self with your soul, 
And this word might is actually kind of funny because this is usually used to say great or very. It's not used as a noun. This is pretty much the only other place or the only place in Scripture aside from one other place where it's used as a noun. And the other place where it's used is kind of reflecting and referencing this. But it literally would read, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your very. Love Him with all your very. Have this over-the-top type love for Him. I loved this kind of translation for it uh, that one commentator said, love the Lord your God with total commitment, your heart, with your total self, your soul, and to total excess. To total excess. Loving God should be over the top. You can't love Him too much. We're so afraid of being weird. But Moses is telling us this deserves all of your life, 100%, your whole heart. It's a question of worship. Loving God and worshiping Him isn't, hey, I come and I spend an hour in church, but my entire life revolves around Him. I'm one of those weird spiritual people. I worship Yahweh alone. What does our life, the life of our church, your life as an individual, what does it actually revolve around? If someone were to look at your life and map out your day, would they say, yeah, this person worships Yahweh? Or would they say, this person gives lip service to Yahweh, this person shows up and sometimes worships Yahweh, or would they say, yeah, this, their whole life is consumed with worshiping the one great God? Is that what they would say? You can't overdo it. Church, don't hold back in worshiping our Lord. Don't hold back. So again, God's people serve only one God, and we must worship Him alone. But the truth is there's a threat, and Moses is going to talk about this. Now, I'm going to skip verses 6 to 9 for now. We're going to come back to it. Don't worry. By the way, I reserve the right to preach on Deuteronomy 6 again because it's such a key verse. I can't unpack all of this this morning. So we may revisit this again in the life of our church. There's so much here. But we'll come back to verses 6 to 9 in a moment. We're going to go to verse 10, but I want to show you our second point before we read it. Here's the threat. Our worship of God is threatened by comfort and culture. Comfort and culture. Those threaten our worship of God. This point will come back on the screen so you don't have to get all of it written right now. Verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, and with great and good cities that you did not build, and then He continues, all the things that you didn't do, or that you're not going to do for yourselves, Verse 12, then take care lest you forget Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. So the first threat is comfort. Comfort. God's people were going to be blessed. They were going to receive all of these things. And he says, when you have those good things, you're going to be tempted to forget. Because when you have a bunch of good things, it's hard to remember that you were once a slave and needed deliverance. We talked about for our whole series of Esther, the idea of deliverance. And even last week, we talked about the need to remember God's deliverance. If you didn't get a chance to listen to last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It fits very well with what we're talking about this morning. We need to be reminded of our deliverance. They were enslaved in Egypt. We were enslaved to sin obeying its passions and desires, deserving death, eternal condemnation, being under the wrath of God. But God in His great love 
sent Christ to die for us on the cross. We didn't do anything to deserve His death for us. He lived the perfect life and willingly laid it down on the cross for us, His people. And the question is, will we believe? When we believe, we are delivered. And that is the deliverance we need to remember. But God tells His people, when you have a bunch of wonderful good things around you, you are tempted to forget that deliverance. If I have everything I need, then sin doesn't feel all that bad. Sin must not be that bad because look at my life, it's great. What do I need to be delivered from? Our reality is we are generally a wealthy community, a wealthy church, and money can blind us. We have the luxury, it's a luxury church, especially if a church of our size. We have the luxury of affording to hire a pastor of student and children's ministry. We have the luxury to, Lord willing, have a continued strong youth program, strong Awana. And then as parents, and as the church body as a whole, even those of us who are not parents or aren't even married, to just say, well, my job is just to get the kids there. And God says, when you have those comforts, take care lest you forget your need for God's deliverance. Church, we need to be crying out for ourselves and our children. It doesn't matter what kind of programs we've got going on in our church. We need to be saying, Lord, have mercy on our children. They do not deserve to be saved. They don't. I caught myself, I I journal a lot, and I was kind of, I like to journal and pray, and I was like, Lord, you know, please save them. They're so sweet and I love them. And it's like, wait, hold on. Well, no, no, no. They don't deserve to be saved. Lord, have mercy on them. They're wicked little sinners. Sorry, kids, they're they're not even listening. But Lord, have mercy on them. So yes, we have Lord willing, if Nolan would be our guy, what great things he could bring to this church. But that does not remove the responsibility from us to continually crying out to the Lord and for us to be taking responsibility for our own children and all the children in our church. More on all of that in a moment. The second threat that we see, so the first was comfort, the second one is culture. He talks about the culture that's around them. All of these nations who worship a different, different gods. We have a culture around us as well that worships different gods. We even have Christian cultures around us that worship different gods. Sure, their god may have the same name, but they're not necessarily worshiping the same Lord. We have to look. What is the character of the god that the people around us are worshiping? There's pagan culture and then there is Christian culture, and both of them are incredibly dangerous. We need to have gospel culture that is oriented around Christ. But the culture that we live in We are like fish in water. We don't know that we live in it. And sometimes things get said about the culture that we live in that's like, feels to us like petting a cat backwards. We're like, oh, I don't know. I don't like that. But sometimes that's good for us to be challenged about the culture that we live in. But also we need to have eyes and glasses that are willing to say, there is a culture around me and I need to be aware of what it's feeding me. What am I listening to? What am I watching? What am I reading? That doesn't mean that I... Don't ever visit with the culture around me and understand what's going on. It doesn't mean there's no redeeming elements about the culture around me and that I can't participate at all in the culture around me. But am I saturating myself in the things of the Lord versus the things of our culture? So 
So our worship of God is threatened by comfort and culture. So what combats this threat? What is the answer? How do we love the Lord with complete loyalty? God speaks. God speaks. So we must saturate ourselves and our children in His speech. That's our third idea this morning. And praise be to God that the answer isn't try harder. The answer is our God has spoken. He speaks to us. He is the main thing. And He wants us to worship Him, so He speaks to us. And as we hear from Him and have our ears opened, we will more naturally worship Him. That's why I pray every Sunday morning, Lord, help us to have ears to hear. The Shema starts with, Hear, O Israel, hear. You can't hear something if nothing's being said. God is speaking to us. So let's look at verses 6 through 9 again. And these words, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We have this speaking God who wants us to saturate ourselves, saturate ourselves with His good message. You know, last week I talked about the need not just to know the stories, but to remember the deliverance. And here we have, again, the idea, this good news needs to be permeating our very selves. We need to be like sponges that are just soaking up the good news of Jesus. And we need to be helping our children to soak this up as well. And this is a job that never ends. We can never be too saturated. You know why? Because if we're sponges, there's always pressure on us trying to push all of the Jesus out. Praise be to God that can't happen because Jesus holds on to us. However, we need to be continually soaking in what Jesus says to us. Now think about what they were told to saturate themselves in. At this point, they got the first five books of the Bible, all right? Saturate yourself in Leviticus, in the back half of Exodus where Moses describes the construction of the tabernacle. Woof! <laughs> I mean, some of you guys, you know, you, every year you're like, I'm going to read the Bible this year. And you start reading Genesis, and you're like, this is interesting stuff. There's wild, crazy things. There's murder, and, you know, it's, it's amazing. In the first half of Exodus, you're like, oh, there's ten plagues, and God rescues his people. And then all of a sudden, Moses goes up on a mountain and he comes down with, you know, the plans for building a tent. And you're like, oh, this is a struggle. And then you get to Leviticus. Maybe you, you slog through the rest of Exodus, and then you get to Leviticus, and oh, man, first eight chapters are like the same thing on repeat. And you're like, hmm, maybe next year. <laughs> maybe next year I'll read through the Bible. But we read those, and yeah, it's tempting to be boring, because it is repetitive. However, there's a redemptive element in that. God is telling us how He wants to have relationship with His people and how He has made a way. It's not just a boring tent. This is the tent where the presence of God is going to dwell. It's not just a list for a bunch of sacrifices. It's telling us how there's a way for our sin to be dealt with. These are all pointing to Jesus. So as Christians, yes, it can, it can be hard to read, but there's a Jesus layer in there that should give us a great amount of joy. And we can say, Lord, it's hard to read this over and over again, but... Help me to see Christ. Help me to see Christ. 
That is what we need to saturate ourselves in, this story of deliverance. We need to saturate ourselves in all that God has said. That's why we're going to read a book like Haggai. Yeah, it can be a little tough because it's, it's one of the minor prophets. Prophets are sometimes hard for us to read, but it'll be good for us. How much time do you spend reading the Word, listening to good preaching? Notice I didn't say my preaching, but, you know, just preaching. We have more access to spiritual resources than any generation before us. Churches used to go, they used to have service on, you know, Sunday night, Wednesday night, all this time. And I'm not necessarily advocating that we return to that. But do we as a people saturate ourselves with that kind of messaging over and over and over again? And I think it's even more important for us today because we're hearing more from other places. It used to be you worked on your farm. You didn't hear any other messaging all day. And then you got to hear from, from a preacher, from the Word. And that was kind of the only messaging you got. But now we're bombarded with everything 24-7 and we've shrunk the amount of time that we listen to the Word. Church, we need more. We need more, not less. We need to serve more, not less. We need to be around the people of God more, not less. And our children need that more. They don't just need to be handed off to Sunday school teachers and youth pastors and Awana leaders, but they need us to be caring for them moment by moment, talking about the beauties of Christ and the goodness of God. They need that 24-7. We need to be weird. We need to be weird. All right, God speaks. So we are to saturate ourselves and children in His speech. I want to kind of close with talking about the danger that we face as a church. And I mentioned this earlier, but it's tempting to outsource, to outsource this job to our pastor of student and children's ministries. To say, well, we hired this guy. Isn't it his job to do this? And to one degree, yeah, he's pouring out his life into the lives of our children. But we're not outsourcing care to him. We're inviting expertise. We're inviting him to give special attention as a unique individual that does not excuse the rest of us, even those who are not parents or have children that are out of the house or don't have kids yet or don't have spouses. All of us are in this together caring for our children, seeing them, serving them, loving them, sharing the gospel with them. So our future pastor is going to help us to train and equip our children. He's going to give us ways to saturate our children with the good news of Jesus and with what we find in His Word. But also, He's going to help create unique environments where, we can, where our children can consider the gospel maybe in unique ways. Because sometimes it does take those special moments. I think for many of us, we can think of a special time or maybe in a special place where God moved in our lives in a way that we weren't expecting. And so uh, if it's Nolan, he would be blessed to get to create those types of spaces. But again, that doesn't excuse the rest of us. Do you listen to podcasts with your kids about spiritual things? I don't have time to go into a bunch of recommendations today, but they're out there. Maybe another time I can share them with you. Listen to that kind of stuff with your kids. You know, just even if you're riding in the car, it can just be on in the background. You can maybe talk about it every now and then. After you watch a movie and maybe there was something a little questionable in it, do you process with your kid about what they saw? How about this? Even when there's not something questionable, maybe it was a great story. You watch, you know, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Do you talk afterward about how Christ is found in that story? Or even if it's something that's created 
fully by the secular world, and there's no Christian roots at all, but it's a glorious story of kind of redemption and success. We can talk about how all of those find its roots in Jesus. Try to bring everything back to Jesus. May we be that kind of people. Okay, this morning, what's one thing, one thing, just one thing that you can start doing that you, so that you and your kids, if you have them, can be more saturated in the gospel? Just one thing. One thing you can start doing, but then one thing you need to stop doing. Because if you're adding something into your life, what's one thing you need to take away? You know, if you want to start waking up every morning and exercising, you can't stay up late at night watching TV. You just can't. Otherwise, you're not going to want to wake up. What do you need to take out of your life if you're going to put something else in? Is there a podcast or more worship songs or preaching or whatever? What's one thing you need to do? God is calling His people to pass on and have complete loyalty to Him. And it's a job that never ends. So our response to it this morning is this. Keep hearing Him. Keep loving Him. Keep hearing, keep loving. As you saturate yourself, listen and respond. Listen and respond. Because He alone is worthy of our worship. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your graciousness to us. Help us to walk with you and know you better and better each day. And Lord, I pray that we, as a church, would saturate ourselves with your story of deliverance so that it's something we would be continually passing on to our children. Father, we praise you that you speak and you have given us ears to hear. May we love you more and more each and every day. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.